It's October, the month of horror, and that means emergency services are about to get extra busy. What would you do if you called 911 and no one answers? This world is a strange one. Being a paramedic would be tough and scary. You have to rush to save lives at all hours of the day, and sometimes your own life can be in danger while you try to save others. This video is dedicated to all the paramedics out there that lose sleep so that we can be safe. They are the people that make 911 possible. So enjoy these creepy and allegedly true stories of paramedics. Before we begin, be sure to like this video and share this video all over the place. Also, submit your creepiest Halloween stories at reddit.com slash r slash darkness prevails. Now, let's see the nightmares that paramedics often face. Number one, scariest patient transport, submitted by EMT Paramedic. This is a story of one of my first patient transports as a paramedic. I've been in the emergency medical field since 2011, working for an ambulance company in an urban area. I will not give away too many details as to comply with HIPAA laws. My partner and I were working our usual shift, nothing out of the ordinary, just your typical day. It was getting towards the end of our 14-hour shift when we get a call over the radio to respond to a nursing home for a patient with altered mental status. Usually, a call like this is just a diabetic who forgot to take their insulin shot or a patient suffering from Alzheimer's. So pretty much a call like this is basically easy to figure out and easily remedied on the way to the hospital. Nothing dangerous or out of hand. So as we drove there, we thought nothing more of it. We arrived on the scene and immediately became concerned because there were multiple police cars positioned outside the facility. What was going on? We entered the scene with the escort of a police officer who brought us to a woman who was being restrained by the officers. She was kicking and screaming in such a horrifying way, we were almost hesitant to approach her, even though she was being restrained. We began to assess the patient, whose vital signs were skyrocketing off the charts. However, we couldn't seem to figure out what was causing the sudden onset violence and aggression. Her blood sugar was well within a normal range, so hypo or hyperglycemia was not the cause of her current mental state. We had spent enough time on the scene by this point and had to begin transport of the patient. We had the officers place her on the stretcher and we tentatively placed our EMS-approved restraints on her and secured her to the stretcher. We informed the police what hospital we planned on transporting her to for their report and we told them we could follow up if they needed it. We loaded up the patient and radioed dispatch to let them know we were en route. All the while, the patient had not stopped screaming or trying to break loose from her restraints since we arrived on that scene. I was definitely creeped out by her irrational and unexplained behavior. On the way to the hospital, it was my job to recheck vitals every five minutes 
which sounds easy to do on a restrained normal patient, but this woman was snapping her teeth between screams and visibly trying to wriggle loose of her wrist restraints. She wanted to attack us and I was horrified. Being the rookie I was, I tried my best to get a second set of vitals while we were racing to the facility. Up ahead in the driver's seat, my partner yelled back to me, saying that we were about to go through a tunnel and it should only be another two minutes to our destination altogether. Ah, oh, crap, I thought, as the ambulance went straight into a darkened tunnel. I was sitting on the bench in almost complete darkness with the patient right next to me. But the moment we entered the tunnel, she stopped screaming. She stopped pulling on her restraints. She made no noise or motion altogether. She just sat there motionless, staring right into my eyes. And as I stared back at her in horror, she whispered something to me. She said something that I won't soon forget. There's something inside me. Chills ran down my spine. I didn't know what that meant. I was supposed to be the trained professional here, and I had no idea what to do for her. She didn't break eye contact with me until we finally arrived at the facility. We gave our report, and we transferred the patient to the hospital staff. We assisted putting her in a hospital bed with restraints, and off she went. As she rolled away, she continued to stare at me until she was pushed through some double doors and she disappeared from my life altogether. This may not be the most exciting story, but it was one of the creepiest moments in my life. Number two, Paramedic Horror Story, submitted by Dave. I was around 23 when I was working with the Chicago Fire Department. I was a lead paramedic and the driver of the ambulance. And one day, we got a call that I would never forget. It was around six in the morning when we got this call. I had been nodding off, ready to enter dreamland after a long day. Dispatch said something along the lines of adult male and unknown causes. Immediately, I jumped into the ambulance and we sped out of the firehouse, lights and sirens on, going full speed down the road. We managed to get there on time. We saw the man in the front yard and then we saw the needle sticking out of his chest. We tried to ask him how that happened, but he did not reply. We asked multiple times before patching it up and carefully loaded him into the stretcher we looked around us before we left, and I saw an old woman staring plain at us while we were doing our job. I called out to her, can I help you, ma'am? But there was no reply. We set off to the hospital, but while doing so, we saw a car following us. As I peered into the windshield, I saw that it was the old lady from before. She was following us in a bright red Buick. We pull up at the bay to unload the passenger and do the paperwork when the old woman pulls up right behind us, only a few feet away from the back door. She was so close to the emergency vehicle and she wouldn't respond to our commands, so we were forced to open it up on top of her hood. 
and as soon as we touched her car, she yelled at us. Why did you do that? Finally, she was talking, and she was apparently psychotic. I told her we had warned her a dozen times, but she ignored us, not to mention there are warnings on the back of our vehicle, as well as the emergency entrance of the hospital. She wasn't supposed to be in this lane at all, but she just went on and on about how pissed she was, angry that we had scratched her poor hood just to save this man's life. I'm not leaving until I see him die, she then said, and if you try to move my car or even touch me, I'll stick you next. She was warning us as she pulled out another needle from her car, the same type of needle we had seen in the man. And by needle, I mean a thin rod with a pointed end that was at least two centimeters thick, something that could easily penetrate the body and kill somebody. Right away, I called the cops, and as soon as she figured out that the police were on their way, she gave me an angry look pointed her needle at my face, then sped away in her car. We never figured out why the woman attacked that man, why they were both so quiet about it, but I do know that that woman probably belongs in a mental asylum. So if you see some crazy old woman carrying long, thick needles around, stay away, or she might try to impale you next. Number three, Creepy Possessed Kid, submitted by Marcus. My story is about the creepiest calls I've been on. Back then, I worked as a voluntary firefighter while I was in college to stay active, and most of the time we were just EMTs or paramedics, not just firemen. One day though, I get a call from HQ to help out a burning cabin in Colorado. Since it was only a small building, I thought it'd be easy to take control of. As my crew and I are heading out, I get this strange feeling in my stomach, like the ones you get when you know something terrible is about to happen. So your sixth sense kicks in. I kept hearing a voice in my head telling me, jump out of the truck. It's not safe to go there. I ignored it, and soon we arrived on the scene. As we parked in the front yard, it was obvious that the house was still ablaze, and soon I see a young boy, maybe eight to 10 years old, wrapped up in a blanket sitting with the paramedics at the ambulance. His skin was covered in black smudges because of the coals from the fire. By the time I saw that, we unloaded the hose from our fire truck and took all the procedures to put the flames out. My buddy Jerry and I ran inside to check if anyone was still there. I found a middle-aged man in the living room floor who looked like he had tried crawling through the door. The guy was pretty big. He looked to be about six foot five and a good 260 pounds. It was surprising to see that the kid had made it out okay, but he didn't. So Jerry and I picked him up and we carried him out to safety in a rush. He was unconscious and unresponsive. I checked his vitals and got nothing. The old man passed away, trying to escape his burning house. There was a silver crucifix clutched in his right hand. I saw it there when we carried him out. The ambulance took the kid, and once the fire was out, 
and we were finished tending to the victims, we finally left. Later on, I visited to check on the child. I wanted to know how everyone was and what happened afterwards. Unfortunately, the nurse didn't let me in because the kid didn't know me, but luckily I saw Jerry and our other crewmate, Jennifer. They were having a conversation and I overheard Jennifer say, I don't know how it happened, but they're saying the kid did it. I interrupted them and asked what they were talking about. Jerry, looking like a nervous child who just got caught stealing from the cookie jar, finally told me. Man, after the fire, I spoke with the paramedic assistant. She told me that when they were talking to the kid about what happened, he told them something. He said, they made me do it, the goat men. They said if I didn't do it, they would take all my toys away. The assistant then asked the kid, do what? And he replied, they wanted me to kill daddy and set the house on fire. They said he would be very proud of me. So, so proud. The assistant wasn't able to think of a reply, so she put on a fake smile and walked away. And then she told her coworkers about it. They actually brought a therapist on scene to speak with the boy the next day. The goatman made him set the house on fire. What the hell, I said in a confused voice. I know, man, it's ironic, isn't it? A kid would kill his own father just to keep his toys. Yeah, that's crazy, I agreed. I feel sorry for both of them, and I hope he gets the help he really needs. I left the building and tried to clear my mind of the weird and eerie situation, but later that evening, I got a call from Jerry. He told me that Jennifer informed him that when the police investigated the scene, they found two odd things in the burned cabin. The first one was a Ouija board from the 1800s under the dad's bed in perfect condition. The second was a wooden-handled hatchet. It was next to the father's bed. It was badly burnt, but there were still bloodstains on it. It didn't take long for analysts to deduce what happened before the fire. It was concluded that the dad was sleeping in his bed when the son sneaked into his room with the hatchet and killed him, stabbed him right in the back, severing his spinal cord, leaving him bleeding and paralyzed from the shoulder blades down. The son then carefully lit the bed with the match and once he was successful, he went back into his room to play with his toys, seemingly forgetting about what he had just done. The fire had blocked the other side of his bedroom door, so he couldn't escape through it. Once half of his own room was on fire, he broke through the window with a small wooden chair to get out, and as soon as he was out, he sat patiently to watch the whole place go down. They still weren't sure if the dad died of blood loss first or low oxygen from the fire, while he tried to crawl out. But we didn't notice the gash on his back when we carried him out because he was covered in black ashes and debris. It was the most disturbing story I've ever heard of. The kid was demon possessed or just psycho. Either way, he was no human on the inside, if you know what I mean. That kid, he's not normal. 
and I'm not sure it's a good idea to allow him back in the public with everyone else. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Number four, he didn't make it. I've worked as a paramedic for a while now. I mainly go out with search and rescue units to treat people they find. My best friend Judah happens to be a nurse and we work at the same hospital. He had a day off, so he volunteered one day to go out with us. On that particular day, we had an alert that a 25-year-old man had been missing for days and had just been spotted by a man who was hiking. So we loaded up and took off. We had a few people at the front in case we saw him come out. I waited in the back of the ambulance, ready just in case someone found him. I was getting a gurney set up when I got a call that they found the man's body. It was kind of shocking to hear, considering we just got reports that he was seen alive. Then the really creepy part happens. I was talking to some police officers specifically a friend of mine named James. He was in front of me, and I glanced at the tree line behind him, only to see someone standing there, staring straight into my eyes. He had rugged facial hair and torn clothes. He was about six foot two and in pretty good shape. He had this blank expression on his face, and after a few moments of just staring at me, he stepped backwards into the woods until he disappeared from my view. You might be wondering why I didn't say anything. Well, I was too scared. You see, the group all had pictures of the man we were looking for, the man whose body was apparently found already. And that was the man I just saw, alive and staring at me. My body was covered in chills, and not too long after, some of our group members broke through the tree line carrying the remains of the man we were looking for. And sure enough, it was him, exactly the same as I had just seen him. He looked parched and he looked scared. I would have been more terrified at the realization of what I just saw if I didn't feel so bad for the man. 
he passed away scared and alone. This experience really changed me. It took me a while to get past it, and even still, every day, I can't seem to stop thinking about it. Why did I see him in the woods when he was already dead? And if I wasn't hallucinating, what was he trying to tell me? Be careful in the woods, guys. People go lost there every year. Number five, it wasn't a bear. Submitted by Sarah. I'll begin by stating that I've been a paramedic for nearly six years now, spending all of that time in Ontario, Canada. For the most part, the job's been relatively textbook. Not to say it wasn't brutal though, as I've experienced plenty of bullet holes, knife wounds, and burn victims. The job of a paramedic is to stabilize an uninjured person's condition to make sure they're able to arrive at the hospital and receive proper treatment, you know, before they die. So, as you can expect, we see a lot of gruesome sights. However, the experience I'm about to share with you was in a league entirely of its own and it's something I've tried to forget, but I just can't. Midway through 2015, I was working the night shift, if you could call it that, in a small district of Ontario. At our dispatch, there were a total of 23 of us working, waiting for the telltale call to action. Usually, there are two paramedics in an ambulance, unless specifically stated that multiple people are hurt or injured. When I got the instructions to head out that night, me and my partner, Mike, climbed into the back of the ambulance. The call was placed at 2.13 in the morning and we left two minutes after. From the vague and creepy description, a man said he was mauled by something. He said that it looked like a bear, but it wasn't one. I shrugged off the weirdness of his story and we drove along our way. He was on a residential street, at least a few blocks away from any wooded area large enough to support some bears. So we found it even more strange that that was the animal he referenced. When we arrived on site, something was already off. The air had a very heavy coppery or ozone scent to it, like right before a massive thunderstorm. It was so thick and palpable, it almost made me vomit. It was that bad. Mike and I exited the emergency vehicle. Upon glancing down the street, we saw the man who placed the call. He was lying on his stomach, arms and legs outstretched. With his face down, he was lying directly on the asphalt of the street. What was odd was that on this small suburban block, all the street lights were out, aside from the very one directly above the man. We quickly approached him. All the while, the coppery smell got stronger. We powered through it, and when we made it over to him, Mike asked him the basic questions. Sir, were you the one who called 911? Can you show us where you've been attacked? We were now within a few feet of him, and he began to make this odd noise. Jittering is how I could describe it. It was an odd sight to behold. With his face flat on the asphalt, his whole body began to tremor. 
We rolled him over to check out his injuries. By now, the copper smell was overpowering. To even get a decent breath of fresh air, I'd have to cover my shirt over my mouth, and even that didn't work too well. When we rolled him over, we immediately took a step back. His chest and shirt were gone, and I'm telling you completely missing. In place of where the torso skin should have been, there was only one large gouge mark, like some massive claw or weapon swiped across his body. It was oozing blood, and both me and Mike were utterly confused as to how he was still alive, let alone conscious enough to make the call and be waiting for us. After flipping him over, the jittering abruptly stopped and his eyes closed. I heard him stop breathing. I checked his pulse, only to find that he was gone. Sure enough, we had to pronounce him dead on the scene, labeling it a wild animal attack. As the bleeding came to an eventual halt, we prepared to load his body into the back of the ambulance. I grabbed the stretcher, but Mike was focused on something else. I followed his gaze, and it appeared that he was staring at the corner of the street. Then I noticed what had caught his attention. Next to the stop sign, towering at least two feet above it, was a man. As I said previously, the street lights were malfunctioning, so we couldn't make any features out. He looked as if he was extremely skinny, but we could see a silhouette. That's how I could tell that he appeared to have what looked like a vintage fedora atop his head. Mike called out to him, then he vanished. He was gone. To this day, I've never seen anything like it. As he dissipated, the smell did as well. Normally, smells get less strong, of course, over a period of time. However, the copper scent was there one moment and gone the next. To this day, I'm not sure of what we saw. If I had to guess, that man or thing we saw standing next to the stop sign had something to do with the man's death. I'm still a paramedic, working in Ontario, Canada. It's been about two years since then, and I've never experienced anything similar. However, there's one thing I definitely know. Whatever attacked that man, it wasn't a bear after all. And number six, EMT with a gift for seeing ghosts. Submitted by Just Another MICT. I work as an MICT or paramedic on Oahu, Hawaii. Back when I was an EMT working for city and county EMS, I had a coworker named Charlene. She has since moved on to working other fields, but back when she was working city EMS, she had a few encounters involving seeing ghosts. If there were ever a superhero ability that I didn't want, this would easily make the list. In one instance, she was practicing her violin outside the old Aya ambulance crew quarters at Polly Momi Hospital. The old crew quarters were the last door on the left down a dead end hallway. 
she saw two children run past her to the end of the hall, where they then simply vanished. Supposedly, the hospital was built over sacred ground, and back in the days prior to Western Contact, there was a huge tree standing there. The ancient Hawaiians would bring dying family members here to pass on, and often the dying people would see the minehune, or dwarf-sized people that weren't usually visible. They would be sitting high up in the branches of the tree. Later, after the hospital was built, nurses would complain about kids running through the halls on the second floor after visiting hours. Of course, nobody could ever find these children, and the second floor is probably about the height of the branches the Minehune were seen in during ancient times. Charlene probably saw them too in that hallway. Another instance occurred on the midnight shift at the Hawaii Kai unit. EMS shares a station with HFD there. The crew quarters is no more than a tiny room off to the side of the apparatus bay. Back then, we had eight-hour shifts the midnight shift was 2300 to 0700, and in that unit, the EMT unit usually slept on the floor on a futon in the supply room, while the medics got the lazy boy recliner in the main area. There were two computers there to do charts on, and the lazy boy was just off to the side of one of them. One night, Charlene was charting while her partner, Gary, was crashed out on the recliner. For some strange reason, Gary woke up, but was unable to move. He could clearly see Charlene on the computer, but that wasn't all. At the edge of the darkness, just beyond where the light of the monitor illuminated, stood a girl. Gary was in the recliner behind Charlene to her eight o'clock, and the girl was to Charlene's four o'clock. The girl started drifting towards Gary. Her form seemed to move slowly and smoothly across the room without the bobbing or cadence of a walking person. So basically, she was gliding, Gary was still unable to move, but could see the girl disappear from his peripheral vision on his right. Suddenly, the girl's right hand came down upon his. When he felt it, it was pale and cold, and her fingers intertwined with his and slowly pulled his hand upward for a few moments before putting it back down. At this point, Charlene briefly glanced towards Gary, but didn't seem to see anything. So she went back to typing, and Gary eventually went back to sleep. There were no calls for the rest of that night. That morning, Gary was unsure how to go about asking Charlene if she saw anything, so he decided to cast out a lure. I kinda had a weird dream last night, he said. What was it? replied Charlene. He recounted his story, and Charlene told him that she remembered seeing his hand up, but thought he was just doing it in his sleep. When he mentioned the girl, Charlene asked him to describe her. She was Asian, he said, with really white skin and dark hair past her shoulders, I believe. Oh, her, said Charlene very casually. She's been following me for the past week. Apparently, Charlene and another medic were sent to do a pronouncement for a suicide. It was either an OD or a hanging, I forget which. At the airport hotel, back when it was the Holiday Inn, Charlene said that while they were there, she saw the girl in the corner of the room. The girl was telling her she made a mistake and did not want to die. On a side note, we actually have a lot of suicides here. It's a shame. 
A girl from Japan I dated told me that she considered it once, saying that Hawaii was the only place she was ever truly happy and that dying here would be a way to hold on to that happiness. We have a large Asian population living here and suicide is a bit of a taboo subject, which is why it's rarely covered in the news. Despite all the pronouncements and DOAs I've been to, I've never had nightmares or seen ghosts and hopefully it stays that way. We didn't have paramedics rushing to our sides when we needed them most. More and more people would die every year. We'd all be vying for a house or apartment located close to a hospital. You'd have to hope that whatever emergency or injury you run into, you could just walk it off until you make it to the hospital, if you make it. But then you forget how horrible American healthcare is and you just want to die anyway. Hell, that's scary enough to end on, I think. So, good night. Be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe if you enjoyed the video. And don't forget to send me your Halloween horror story soon at reddit.com slash r slash darkness prevails. Thank you. To all of you listening still, stay safe out there and stay creepy.